0: Here we are in chapter 3, verse 18, and I'm going to read 18 through verse 1, and in your pew Bible, that's on page 984. So you'll be helped by having the Bible open before you, and uh, once you find that, Colossians 3, 18, I want you to turn backwards just probably uh, five or six pages and find a corresponding text in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul is the writer of Colossians and Ephesians, and these are called prison letters. And so he had at least a couple of imprisonments. And in his first one, he wrote the letter to Ephesus, which is the main city in Asia Minor, now Turkey. And then he also wrote another letter while he was in prison at that same time to a small suburb city of Ephesus called Colossae. So when you read Ephesus and you read Colossians, uh, there's a lot of similarities because he's just sitting in a prison. He's writing one letter and then he's going to go write another letter. And so there's a lot of crossover there. And I want to take note of that, especially today in our passage. So let's stand together as we read and we'll begin in Colossians chapter 18. I mean, chapter 3, verse 18. Uh, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, in Ephesians chapter 5, I want to read a few verses here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. You may be seated. Let's take a moment to reflect together on God's Word. A significant word for the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Colossians is the word "fullness," or in the Greek, it's "plerō" uh, plero P-L-E-R-O, which means full or complete or or completely filled out. Uh, one of the way one of one of the times that we see it is in um, chapter one, verse fifteen through twenty. You might remember that chapter. Uh, Paul is trying to talk about the um, supremacy of christ and he gets so caught up in trying to communicate this he he basically inserts an uh, an early church hymn so verses 15 through 20 is just a hymn and he just says hey the hymn says it better than i can say it so i'm going to put it in this letter and we find this uh, in verse 19 of chapter 1 for in christ all the fullness of god was pleased to dwell And then in verse 16, this this fullness of God in Christ has cosmic implications because he says this, By him, or by Christ, all things were created. So this fullness of God in Christ now tells us that Christ, obviously, then he created all things. All things hold together. This fullness of, of God in Christ has cosmic implications. Then in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, says this, for in him, Jesus, in Jesus, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. It's just Paul repeating the same thing he just said in chapter 1, and then he goes on to say, and you. Okay, so in Christ, God fully dwells, Christ is completely filled out with God, and then Paul transitions and says, and you have been filled, the same word, you've been completely filled out in him. So, so just like the fullness of God is in Christ, now the fullness of Christ is in, in us. When you become a Christian, you become completely full. You don't need something else. Paul's trying to say here, once you have Christ, you're complete. You don't need Christ and something else. Christ is all that you need. And then in chapter 3, he says this, if then, he makes this transition, if then you've been raised with Christ... If you've been filled with Christ, then, if you've been filled up with Christ, you've been filled out with Christ, then, and for the rest of the chapter, and even into chapter 4, he tells about the personal implications of you being a follower of Christ, of being filled out with Christ. And you see several of them here. First of all, there are eternal implications for you and I. Chapter 3, verse 2, set your minds on things above. So once you've been filled out uh, with Christ, now your mind that had been focused on the world is now, I'm focused on something else. There's something greater in store for me, which helps me walk through this world with greater clarity. So Christ in me is, has eternal implications. Secondly, it has moral implications. And we took several weeks to look at this. You saw these words in chapter 3, verse 9, and chapter 3, verse 12. You have to put on and you have to put off. And we talked about when you, when you become a Christian, it's as if Christ enters into sort of your, like your clothes closet. And he comes in and he sees, hey, there's some things in here. We need to pitch out. And then as I'm rummaging around here and throwing a lot of stuff out, there's some stuff that I have to, to, to put in. And I, I had an occasion just recently to help one of my friends. She's a 12-year-old girl clean out her closet. What a joyful experience. <laughs> and she had a lot of stuff in her closet that had to come out. And as I spent my time trying to navigate and negotiate with her... What needed to come out? Just stuff that wasn't useful anymore. I kept thinking, this is like my life. Christ has come in. He's like, Paul, you know, you're holding on to this like you're going to use it. You're not going to use it. You don't need it. It's time to take this out. And so Paul has this list here in chapter 3. All these things that need to be taken out. And then Christ comes in and says, okay, let's add some of these new pieces of clothing in. So... When Christ fills us out, it has eternal implications. It has moral implications of how we live our lives. And then in our passage this morning, it has domestic implications. How we live in a family. How we live in a workplace. See, Christianity is not a religion that sort of sits on the shelf. You don't just say, well, I became a Christian and I've got this fire insurance policy. And if anything bad happens, you know, I I just whip it out and say, hey, I'm covered at the very end. But I don't really access my policy. I I just have it sort of on the side. And Jane Ann did such a great job of, hey, I just sort of said this stuff. And it was like something I thought I was going to just rely on the end. I had no idea it's something that gave me life right now. And so what the Apostle Paul is trying to say, if you've been filled up with Christ, it has all these implications on your life. It doesn't just sit on the shelf. It matters in how you live as a family, how you live As parents, how you you live in your workplace. So this morning, we want to focus in on the family and the fullness of Christ in our lives informs how we have relationships with our family. And next week, we'll talk about uh, the work, the workplace. Paul offers a very brief few uh, words here, and he really just offers four words of instructions. I want you to take a look at them. They're each in the following verses. Verse 18, submit... Verse 19, love. Verse 20, obey. Verse 21, provoke. So really he's just saying sort of in a rapid fire. He doesn't say everything he possibly could say about these relationships. He just picks out one little thing. And and I think it must be because these are the things that uh, either normally people are wrestling, wrestling with or he knows something about this city that he's talking to. So he's saying, wives... Submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives, verse 19. Children, obey your parents. And fathers, don't provoke your children so that they become discouraged. And we can't say everything that could be said. We, we, Like I said, we have to get to the end of Colossians at some point. And so each one of these could be a sermon. But let's just limit ourselves to the words that Paul has chosen to use in his letter. And I want to start with this marriage relationship. And before I start with these words and the marriage relationship, I want to make a preliminary remark. And this is really important before we get into these words of submit and love. And I want to say this clearly. The submission of the wife and the love of the husband are ultimately about the gospel. They they have other implications for sure, but there's one overarching implication for the Christian marriage. The submission of the wife and the love of the husband are ultimately not about you and your spouse, not about your family, your children. It's ultimately about the gospel. Paul's commands aren't simply, hey, here's some good character traits, but if you have these character traits, you're going to have a much better family. That's not really what he's saying here. He's really saying that these character traits help other people see Jesus. Verse 18, wives submit to your husbands. Why? Why? He says, because it's fitting in the Lord. God has a particular design for marriage. He wants it to fit together like two pieces of a puzzle. And when the wife submits, she perfectly forms herself like a great puzzle piece to her husband. And it's a perfect fit for what God has in store for marriage. Because one of God's primary purposes for marriage is so that marriage would mirror the relationship of Christ and his church. There are other purposes, to be fruitful, to multiply, so, so we wouldn't be lonely. There are all other kinds of great purposes. But one of Christ, or God's greatest purposes for marriage is he needs a picture. The world is living in darkness, and he says, I need some kind of picture so people can understand how much that I love them and what kind of response they must have to me. And so when the wife submits to her husband, she's showing everybody who intends to follow Christ This is what it looks like to follow somebody who loves you. Husbands, verse 18, love your wives. Why? Paul gives this explosive reason in in Ephesians. It's because the the husband's unconditional love. Uh, sacrificial, not self-seeking, but other-seeking love is is just a shadow. It's just like a whisper of the kind of unconditional, sacrificial, Christ-like love that God has for us. And so, husbands, if you ever get confused of, of what your love should look like to your wife, you can just always turn to the cross. Give have a permanent display of, hey, this is what I want to make sure people see. They don't understand how much I love them. So I'm going to use husbands, and I'm going to use them and how they love their wives to show people how much that I love them. So in a Christian marriage, the drama of the gospel is on permanent display. Now, it, this, this coming month, in the month of May, there's five weekends, I think, in May. Maybe there's just four. But however many weekends there are, three of the weekends, there are weddings here at Christ Community Church. And so I'm involved in, in all three. And it's Joe and Michelle, Micah and Megan, and Zachary and Sarah. So these three are coming here to get married in the next month. And, and I just want to say right now to them... And I want to shout out to everybody to say, hey, when they come together for at that moment, in two weeks, in three weeks, in five weeks, their lives now, these two people are going to come become one. They're going to be a permanent display of the drama of the gospel. They're going to do lots of other things, but when they come together, this is like a visible picture for the world. For wherever they live, wherever they go, whoever they intersect with, they're constantly going to be on display. And so how Joe and Micah and Zachary unconditionally and sacrificially love their brides, it'll be a permanent display of how Christ loves us. Wow, what a responsibility. And how Michelle and Megan and Sarah submit to their love is a permanent display of what it means to submit to the love of Christ. What an opportunity. The submission of the wife and the love of the husband are ultimately about the gospel. Because this relationship with, with, between Christ and his church it's a mystery. I mean, if it's a mystery for the Apostle Paul, it's a mystery for the Pastor Paul. If the Apostle Paul's having a hard time really understanding it, I'm having a hard time understanding it. So I need something that I can see that's concrete. And God is saying the marriage is that concrete, visible display of the gospel. So you've got to have that firmly fixed in your head before you jump into these words. Because if you just jump right into the words and you don't understand the context or the value of what you're doing as a wife or as, as a husband, then you're going to really lose steam pretty quickly. So let's look at them as they come in turn. Wives, submit to your husbands. Several things I want to say here. Number one, from the uh, verse in Galatians 3:28, we know that in Christ there is neither male nor female. Paul says that very clearly. So here he is talking uh, in Colossians, or in Ephesians, but also in Galatians, he's saying something that in Christ there is neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. So what Paul's trying to say is in terms of our standing before the Lord, everybody's the same. Male or female, Greek or Jew, slave or free, everybody has the same need for Christ. There's nothing that you bring that somehow creates some kind of value. Everybody has an emptiness. Everybody's dead. Everybody needs Jesus. So in that way, we're all equal. Yet we see throughout the Bible, God clearly assigns different roles within the framework of society. We see that he supports government and people, or those who are governed. He has specific roles in mind for a church and a congregation. He has specific roles in mind for a husband and a wife. He has specific roles in mind for a parent and a child. So God has already created all these things. And when the Bible says in Ephesians, when the Bible refers to the husband as the head... It's not assigning value, it's not assigning competence, it's not assigning talent, it's not making a statement about equality, it's assigning different roles. It's saying when these two people come together, they have different roles. So that's one thing I want to make sure we understand here. Second thing I want us to understand is that this submission is limited every submission to any kind of authority whether it's to a government or whether it's to a spouse or whether it's to a parent or whether it's to a boss it has a limit meaning if somebody's asking you to do that to do something that's clearly contrary to the word of god god is ultimately the authority and his word trumps every other word So if you're ever in a relationship of any kind that somebody has some authority and they're asking you to do something against the Bible, then you would just say, I cannot do that. So there's a limit in terms of that. And also there's a limit here in Colossians that Paul's limiting his discussion about roles in a Christian household. A wife is submissive to her husband. It doesn't say women be submissive to men. And what we have to do is we all have to always have to be careful that when we read something like this in Colossians or Ephesians, we don't take what Paul is saying to a Christian household and then import it into the government or into the workplace and say, well, he must mean the same thing for there. Well, he doesn't mean the same thing for there, or else he would have said it. And so we have to just be very careful when we take these phrases not to import them into other contexts. In my own working career, three different times I've had women who were my bosses, and I've been very happy to submit to their leadership. That was my role. That was the place that I was designated to serve, and I was happy to submit in that kind of context. So we have to make sure we understand the context, and Paul is clearly talking about a marriage here. Third thing, this word submit, hupotasso, such a fun word to say. Hupotasso, under orders, under orders. You're under orders. It's a military term. Paul's borrowing from the culture, and he's saying, you know, when you're in the military, there's soldiers, and there's generals, and there are people who are under our orders. We have a mission to accomplish. We have something to, to, to get done, and in order for us to all work together as a unit, somebody's shouting out this way, and everybody's running that way. That's how it works in the In the army, and so we have to operate as a single unit. And the same thing is with a marriage: these two people become one flesh. And if this one flesh is going to operate as one unit rather than two units, there has to be somebody who leads and somebody who follows. My favorite picture—I keep this on my desk in my office. You can't see it from where you're sitting. Is this little picture? It's me, Zachary Morgan, Nancy sitting on a raft. And we just finished going down the Natahala River. Some of you have heard me tell this story. And so the Natahala River is a relatively small sort of whitewater river up in the mountains of North Carolina. And you can go down without a guide if you feel so inclined. And, of course, as a guy, I don't ever need a guide, right? I mean, this is a guy thing. And so I'm going to be the guide, right? So it's a little four-person raft. Uh, Nancy and Morgan up front, me and Zachary in the back. And so I'm like, okay, guys, this is how it has to happen. I'm going to steer. I'm basically going to stick my paddle back here, and I'm going to be like a rudder. And you guys paddle. I mean, it's really not that complicated, right? And so we're just kind of going. And most of that, a halo, there's just very few rocks, not a lot of white water. That's why you don't need a guide. But there are some rocks. There are some overhanging limbs. There, are, there is some white water. And my wife is sitting at the front of the boat. So she sees the rock first. She sees the white water first, and I start noticing when we get to these rocks, she's not paddling anymore. What is she doing? She's steering. What am I doing? Steering. What happens when you have a boat with two people are steering? You're going into the white water and the branches and the rocks. And I'm just saying, "Hey, quit steering up. there paddle. And she's getting frustrated, like, why do you see? You know, know, it was a family vacation, so it was nice. You know how it is. (laughs) Honey, do you see the water up here? So so I I said, hey, let's paddle over to the edge of the river. And so we had a little family moment there together. (laughs) What a special moment. You know, it's this Hallmark card kind of moment. Honey, love of my life. Stop steering. We're going to die on the Natahala if you keep steering. What should I do? Paddle. See, I wonder how many marriages are in problems because you have two people trying to steer. And you're steering against each other. Now, in a marriage, as my marriage often happens, I say to my wife, hey, you need to steer now. You're better at navigating this issue in our family. But when I do that and I give her the rudder, I'm completely happy she has it. But then I start paddling. You see, so we're not steering against each other. And she's saying, hey, when he wants me to steer, I steer. And when he wants me to paddle, I paddle. I'm not working against his leadership. Same thing in a marriage. So as we go through these, you know, one of these will hit you. You need to think through which one God is really helping you think about this morning. But first thing that Paul says in this domestic way that Christ fills out our lives, if you're going to get married, God says you have a role if you're a wife. That role is hupotasso, to, to line up underneath in order for you to work together as a single unit, in order for you to navigate the white water of your life together, you can only have one person steering at a time. Number two, husbands love your wives. Now, I just thought about this. If, if, if you were reading through this passage and you got here to 318 and you read this, wives submit to your husbands as fitting, as is fitting for the Lord, Husbands, and then there was like a hole in the page of your Bible. Husbands, hole, blank spot, your wives. You're like, hmm, gosh, I'm sorry there's a hole right there. It's a little rub-out mark. I can't read that word. What might you include? What might you put there? Okay, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, Govern, rule, reign over, direct, control. I mean they sort of they kind of work with submit, don't they? Somebody's submitting, and then somebody has to rule, somebody has to reign, somebody has to govern. That would just seem like a natural word to fit in there, but that's not what Paul puts in there. Love your wives. Understand that these women, very strong, equally in need of Christ, equal in intelligent, equal in talent, they're trying to submit. So what do you need to do? Love your wife. And in case there's some confusion of what what loving really means, the great thing is is we have a, a definition and a demonstration of what love really means. The definition, 1 Corinthians 13, love is... If you don't know what love is, if you've got your own definition, let's just read the Bible's definition. And men, let's apply this to the way you live with your wives. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Love always protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres. So if you're confused about your definition, here Paul gives it to you in Corinthians 13. This is what it means like. This is the definition, and what's the demonstration? Christ, husbands, love your wives as. Christ loved the church. There are a lot of powerful illustrations, um, and probably the most is in powerful is in the Old Testament with uh, prophet Hosea. Some of you remember the story. The prophet is the person who is assigned by God to be the mouthpiece for God, to help people understand what God thinks, what he's saying, what, what, he, under, what he thinks about his people. And uh, the prophet Hosea is given instructions by God to marry a prostitute named, named Gomer. No sooner are they married and they start having children that Gomer starts selling herself to other men for sex. And Gomer is, continued, is, is, it, is tasked to continue to supply uh, finances for her, even in the midst of this. And then sort of at the end of, of sort of almost her life, she's completely worn out. She's actually being sold as a slave on an auction block, and she's at the discount price. Nobody wants her anymore. So Hosea's wife is at half price. Meanwhile, he's been supplying her all the sufficient that she needed, the food, the supplies that she needed, to keep living a life of adultery. And God comes to Hosea and says, Hosea, go. He does have to purchase her, but that's not what he says. He says, go love her again. Purchase, maybe, tolerate, maybe. Think about this, man. Go, go love your wife again. And the reason I need you to do that, Hosea, is because my people have prostituted themselves to all things in the world. And I need them to know that I'm still coming for them. So I need you to go for this person who's not lovely in any way. Husbands. You are a permanent visual display for your wife, for your kids, for your workplace, for your community, for the world of what it means for Christ to love us. You're it. You're one of the best visual displays. And it's got to look something like this. Children, number three, children, obey your parents. Obey, another great Greek word, to listen under, to listen under. Two things I find interesting. First, in the book of Proverbs, this book that's all about wisdom, it's just all these, you know, single sort of sayings about wisdom, 31 chapters of of wisdom And it has some introductory, chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 7. Sort of, hey, this is what the book's going to be like. And then Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8 is the first real proverb. It's the first real wisdom saying. So out of all these 31 chapters and all these verses, somehow this is the very first thing. If you really want to be wise, this is the very first thing that gets mentioned. Listen. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. You see, if you really want to be wise, if you really want to understand how it works in the world, what's the best way to live your life, if you're here and you're a child, the best way, the first step forward, the best step forward is to listen to your parents. To obey your parents. The second thing I find interesting is that we really don't know very much and hardly anything about Jesus' life from his birth to the beginning of his ministry. You know that. So we know a lot about his birth. You know how he, his birth got foretold, his coming into the world, the virgin birth, the, the, the no room at the inn. We know all kinds of things like that. But then after he escapes into Egypt, we just don't hear about him basically for 30 or so years. And we really only have one biblical story that we can count on for information, and it comes from Luke, and it comes when Jesus was 12 years old. So this is what we learn. Of, these are the two things we learn about Jesus when he's 12. You might remember the story. There, Jesus is, te- is going with his family, and when we say his family, it's just not his nuclear family, it's everybody who's, in, who's related to Jesus. They're all coming from Nazareth, and they're going to Jerusalem. And they're going to celebrate this festival. And they celebrate this festival for a few days. And, you know, it's not like mom and dad and brother and sister are all together. They're just sort of in a clan. And they're kind of experiencing this festival together with a lot of other Jewish pilgrims. And then they decide, hey, the the festival ends. They're They're walking back home. And it's not like, you know, is everybody in, the seat, in, the, in a seatbelt in the car? It's just, hey, we just assume everybody's moving on back home. So they get a day's walk out of Jerusalem, and guess what? They look around. Jesus isn't there. Now, this is a panic button for every, every parent, is it not? But what if you lost God? I mean, wow. <laughs> Think about the heartbeat you'd have. Oh, my gosh, Joseph, we've lost the Savior. I mean, come on. And so they got to take another day and go back to Jerusalem. They're looking around, and they find Jesus in the temple. And it says that Jesus had astonished all the religious leaders at the time. And so one thing we know about Jesus at 12 is he was as smart as anybody in the temple. And then it says he went back home. And you know what it says? He obeyed his parents. Here is the Creator obeying the creation certainly most of you have heard the Mark Twain quote he says this when I was a boy of 14 my father was so ignorant I could hardly stand to have the old man around but when I got to be 21 I was astonished at how much he had learned in 7 years you see, somewhere around 12 or 13 or 14, your parents just get stupid. And you're just like, man, what happened? I thought they were, could make everything happen. Now I'm way smarter than them. And then somewhere in your 20s, hopefully, you go, wow, it caught up. Incredible. That, that, that happens. And so I'm looking at you if you're 4'12", if you're 14. I realize it's di- this is a difficult stage. I realize that you may think you know more than your parents. But if Jesus Christ was submissive to his parents, how much more is it necessary for us to to obey our earthly parents? Number four, and we'll end here quickly. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Paul picks out in these verses two common tendencies for men. One, they're harsh with their wives, and they... Provoke or stir up their children, and this stirring up, this provoking, which means they, the children become bitter. Uh, it says it causes them to be discouraged, and the word discouraged in the Greek is thumos. So where where you get thermos or thermometer, and so men, fathers. You're, you know, you're the thermometer. You're the thermostat in your home. You largely set sort of the emotional temperature in your home. When your kids come home in your home, a lot of them can tell what the emotional temperature is before they even know they see you. So here's my question for fathers. Fathers. What's it like when you're in the home? What's it like when you have to enter into that conversation with your wife or your family? You have to have this family discussion, and you're the thermostat. Would your family say, well, you know, when it gets hot, he knows how to cool things off. When, when we're freezing, he knows how to create some passion and, and warm things up. Or when, do you, when you enter in, do just people become discouraged? You're angry with your wife. You're discouraging with your kids. You see, the gospel doesn't sit on a shelf. It's not like, hey, I just learned this about Jesus and then that's it. It's, it's I spent 40 years being filled out by the gospel, becoming more and more like the image of Christ, whether it's a wife, a husband, a parent, a father, a child. My hope is that God's speaking to you, helping you see where you need to take some things out, put some things in. Let's pray together. Lord, this uh, very practical passage from 2,000 years ago. From the Apostle Paul, a man who was likely never married, never had children is not just his word, it's a divine word, and it's not just for his day, it's for our day. And so I believe that today was a divinely appointed message for specifically some people here who struggle with some aspect of this. I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, just carry it into their hearts and their souls and their minds. Make it change the way they live their lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.